As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Introducing the Dunkin' Run. A dollar donut with any medium coffee. A whole new era of... I'm going on a Dunkin' Run. You want anything? Yeah, maybe a jelly donut and an iced coffee. You got it. Ooh, wait, actually glazed donut and a hot coffee. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> back on track. Make it a Dunkin' Run. Get a $1 donut with any medium coffee. America runs on Dunkin'. Exclude specialty donuts and fancies. Offer valid on medium or larger coffees. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. <laughs> Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, one of the great singers of our time enjoying the biggest success of her career is with us live in the studio, Nico Case. Plus, we'll be reviewing the new albums from the much-hyped English singer Amy Winehouse and hip-hop superstar producer turned rapper Timbaland. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Less than two months ago, Apple CEO Steve Jobs called on EMI and the other three big record labels, Vivendi Universal, Sony BMG, and Warner Brothers, to drop digital rights management software, anti-piracy software, from all of its online music sales. This week, EMI complied with Jobs' request by saying, yes, we are going to drop all of those digital rights management DRM restrictions on our back catalog, basically sell our entire catalog to consumers with no restrictions at all. In other words, consumers will now be able to download songs from the EMI catalog, copy them as many times as they wish, and play them on any digital player. In addition, they are going to be offering these digital files at a higher bit rate. In other words, the sound quality of these files is going to uh, measurably increase and double the, the bit rate per second. So, of course, this comes with a price increase. <laughs> we couldn't give this away for free. Jobs is going to charge 30 cents more per digital download. That's a pretty steep increase from 99 cents per file to $1.29 per music Can file. Can I inject a bit of history here? Yes. Do you recall when compact discs were introduced? The, the pledge was this technology right now is more expensive than vinyl LPs. Uh, it's going to take a while, but once it becomes the new standard and the sound's going to be so much better, the prices will come down to meet the level of what the vinyl LPs you're buying now are. Never happened. Music industry to this day has a million reasons for problems in the business. You know, and, and a big one was that it went from $10 to buy a vinyl album to 15 to $18 to buy a CD, and it never came back down. We are now seeing that in the realm of the digital download. Exactly. EMI and, and Apple hailing this as a major step forward in in the music industry, and they have to because the music industry has been in a seven-year decline of CD sales, as we've been reporting on Sound Opinions. And and this is seen as the future of the music business. But two interesting things about this press conference, uh, Jim. First of all, they're making it seem like we're giving consumers this big new 
development. In other words, you're, you're going to be able to get these music files. You're going to be able to copy them as often as you want. You're going to be, sh- be able to share them with friends. You're going to be able to play them on any device. Well, they have a little thing called the CD that already does that. Well, yeah. I mean, and now they're charging us 30% more to give us something that we already have right. with, with a CD. Any, any old CD will do no, that already. Absurd. I mean, if, if I buy a, a tune for my iPod, I should also be able to play it in my bathroom clock radio or whatever. Why not? Absolutely. And the second thing is... What, what is unique about this press conference? Jobs, this is an EMI press conference, right? They're making this announcement, but Jobs is up there as virtually a peer of the EMI CEO, Eric Nicoli. In fact, in some ways, it's kind of like Nicoli doing Jobs' bidding. I mean, Jobs made a big deal about calling for this two months ago, saying, remove these copyright restrictions from these digital files. Now Nicoli's making this announcement, and he calls Jobs in. You know, it should be pointed out that all digital music stores will have access to these restriction-free music files, but only Jobs and only Apple were part of this music conference. Yeah. So what is that telling you? It tells I me mean, that Jobs thinks he's Bono. I, I think Jobs <laughs> thinks. I think Jobs <laughs> thinks, and with good reason, that he's running the record industry right now. The record yeah, industry is, is turning Jobs and saying. You're the future, my man. Yeah. You get you get our stuff, and, and you get first crack at it. Well, there's still one huge exception here. What is the jewel of the EMI catalog, capital EMI, the Beatles, right. right? Still no Beatles. Why? What's going on with that? Why are there no Beatles available on digital download? It's kind of surprising in, in some ways because the, you would think that Beatles, being the businessmen that they are, would have taken advantage of this opportunity. But I think they're still very skeptical, as as we have reported on Sound Opinions. The Beatles' Apple recording company and Steve Jobs' Apple computer company have been jousting about the name. That lawsuit was recently settled. Apparently, that paved the way for the Beatles to make their music available on iTunes. That has not happened yet. I have another theory. I think that they're going to want to see how this new higher-priced download, so it's increasing from $0.99 cents to $1.30, right? Yeah, $1.29. Uh, I think the Beatles are thinking we can get $1.50, $1.60, 2 sure. bucks a tune. That's sure. what and, I think we're going to wait and see. And, and I think what we're seeing here, Jim, is a way overpriced product. I mean, instead of coming down in the price of an in- individual download, we're raising the price now? Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. seems to be a trend that's going in the wrong direction. I think if the music industry thinks this is the future by raising prices of digital files, they're absolutely wrong. People it, it's are a still bad getting mistake. These, they're still getting files for free on the Internet. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of files being shared every month on the Internet, and that has only increased. In, in recent years, I don't see this as a step in the right direction for the music industry. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. And if my daddy thinks I'm fine, they try to make me go to rehab. That is Amy Winehouse, the opening track on her second album, Back to Black. It's called Rehab, as in, she ain't going there. (laughs) Apparently, by all accounts in English press, the uh, 23-year-old London bad girl and soul pop sensation could use a little bit of rehab. She is a uh, hard-drinking, hard-drugging, hard-living... Nasty talking woman. She, she's tough stuff. And uh, the English are in love with her. Greg, you know, it is often said that the United States and Great Britain are two countries separated by a common language. And uh, in culture, occasionally we have these phenomenons that are huge in the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, I just don't know how they translate in the U.S., if at all. When we were at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, a couple of weeks ago, Winehouse was definitely one of the biggest hypes of mm-hmm. the year. I didn't get to see her perform. I don't know if you did. But uh, her picture was everywhere. Everybody was talking about this record. It is the second record, as I said. The first one was more on the jazz tip. She comes from that, grew up in a, in a situation where her family, a lot of her family members were jazz musicians. She was steeped in it. Let's hear a track from the album. We're going to hear uh, You Know I'm No Good. Here it is from Back to Black on Sound Opinions. Meet you
Winehouse with a track from her new album, Back to Black. It's called You Know I'm No Good. Guess what? It's set in a bar. And it references <laughs> and it references Tanqueray. And Amy Winehouse, I mean, you think that's a stage name. I believe that's her real name, right, Jim? Isn't that I, her I given think name? So. I think so. Very bizarre. 23 years old. She is all over the tabloids, as you mentioned, in, in the UK. Not only for her singing, but for her boozing and her bad-mouthing people all the time. And this record is full of uh, those true-life tales. She's... She's doing a lot of bad-mouthing here and a lot of regretting the morning after, and there's a lot of booze in between. I do love the story about how she told Bono to shut up at one of the <laughs> award shows. Uh, I, I pat her on the back for that. I got to say, I'm jumping on you. You're going to give your opinion, but I, I, I hate this record. Oh, You know, I, I didn't think it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be horrendous. Uh, she's referencing all of these uh, soul and girl group heroes from yeah. the 60s and 70s. Ray Charles, Donnie Hathaway. She was way too young to have uh, grown up with these artists. Uh, this is clearly a second, third-hand kind of reference that she's uh, – you know, mentioning people like Donny Hathaway, and she's uh, referencing a Billy Paul song, and 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 she's trying awfully hard to sound like the Shangri-Las, and her producers are enablers in this. I mean, they are totally conjuring up these uh, early '60s to late uh, early '70s soundscapes that were very much associated with that sound, that girl group sound, that soul sound of that era. Mark Ronson in particular, as as one of the key producers on this record, he's done a lot of really important work in the last couple of years with a diverse group of artists. Really nice work. But this sounds like a slavish imitation to me. It feels like this 23-year-old woman from England playing dress-up. And I can't get over the fact that, oh, my God, she's she's trying to sound like Nina Simone, but she hasn't yeah. lived Nina Simone's life. No, I, I'll tell you, there's a, a line in that song we just played, You Know I'm No Good, that, that sums it all up for me, where she says, by the time I'm out the door, you tear me down like Roger Moore. And it's a very <laughs> Shirley Bassey-sounding classic 007-era yeah. soundtrack. right? But now, if you're going to drop... Bond's name. <laughs> you, you you mentioned Sean Connery, right? Real Not Bond. Roger Moore. So yeah. everything throughout this album is a little bit off. Yeah. It's just a little wrong. And her apologists in the British press, and now it's spreading to the U.S., a lot of critics are saying, she's schooled in hip-hop. She name-drops Slick Rick yeah. as well as Donny Hathaway, right? right? right, right. So, so it's really a hip-hop attitude. It's not retro. It is retro. She's trying to be Nina Simone. She's trying to be Shirley Bassey. She's not sultry enough or subtle enough or original enough to even walk anywhere in those people's shadows. It's, yeah. it's, it's a transparent retro shtick, you know, and I just, I think it's a trash it record. I think this is a total ripoff, and I don't understand what all these critics are seeing in this record. Back to Black, a trash it record all the way. The most tender place in my heart is for strangers. I know it's unkind, but my own much too dangerous Hanging round the ceiling half the time Hanging round the ceiling half the time you're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's a little bit of Nico Case. Nico Case having a great year. Fox Confessor Brings the Flood, her fifth album, has produced a tour that has been going on for about a year now, selling out shows all around the country. In the second half of this year, she will be touring with her other band, The New Pornographers, not too shabby of a band itself. Nico Case having an incredibly busy year. Nevertheless, Greg, she found time to stop by Sound Opinions with two of her bandmates and play some tunes and uh, have a chat with us. We are here with Nico Case and two members of her band. Kelly Hogan is here and Paul Rigby as well. Welcome to the show, folks. Thank you. Uh, Nico's in the midst of a uh, grueling tour here. Three nights at the Park West in Chicago. She's touring all over the country. Still on a record called Fox Confessor Brings the Flood that was released last year. So, Nico, I guess it would be safe to say that this is among the most successful, if not the most successful records you've ever put out. Yeah, it's definitely the most successful one I've ever put out. Where it stands in the rest of the world, it's probably pretty meager. But for me personally, it's it's not really like a my thriller yet. We'll see what happens. <laughs> no, it's it was very well received. And I think we should start by the fact you are holding an instrument in your hand right now. You've mm-hmm. got a four-stringed guitar, which I believe is called what? That's a tenor guitar? It's a tenor guitar, yes. Originally a punk rock drummer from the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And then celebrated for your singing voice. And now you're playing this, this new instrument here. How did you come to 
develop your chops, your your Steve Howe guitar solo chops <laughs> on the four-string tenor guitar. Because it, it's, like it's really been key. I think of myself as more of a Paul Butterfield of guitar. <laughs> 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 no, I, I have really tiny fingers, and I tried to play six-string for a lot of years, and I never really got anywhere because I, I couldn't stretch out enough to make anything that really sounded like an actual song because you kind of have to get to that point to keep yourself interested in what you're doing. So I kind of tried and gave up a lot of times. And then I went to record part of Furniture Room Lullaby at a studio in Toronto called The Gas Station that my friend Don Kerr runs. And he plays tenor guitar and he had some laying around. And, and I said, oh, what's that? It's a tenor guitar. And then the clouds parted and ah. It's just about making that little bit of progress. It's like the training wheels guitar, you know. To where you can finally be upright by yourself without your dad holding your seat. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, the reason I bring it up, it seems to me like, has that been a key for you in terms of the songwriting? Because with each album, it seems like you're becoming playing a bigger and bigger role, and not just as a singer, but as a songwriter, as well as a producer. And has the guitar been a key in making that transition to, into writing more original songs? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a lot more in charge of my own phrasing vocally when I do a lot of the writing on the guitar, but... On this last record, I actually uh, wrote with other people more because I felt kind of lonely. <laughs> so I'd, st- I'd still write on the guitar with them, but often I would fire myself from playing guitar on the actual song. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I mean, I still played a lot of guitar on the record, but not as much as I did on Blacklisted. Why don't you guys play us a tune, and, and then I'd like to talk a lot more about the songwriting on, on Fox Confessor Brings a Fire. Are you going to play something from that album, or what are you going to give us? Let's do, let's do Teenage Feeling okay. first, and, and I don't actually play guitar on this one, so you guys can mute it if you want. Ready, then? Mm-hmm. That teenage feeling. Kelly Hogan, Paul Rigby, and Nico Case. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and we're going to be back with more of our conversation with Nico Case, plus a live performance. So suddenly, the madness came. 
with its whiskered woven piece of pains. He locked the door and he shut the blinds. He laid down on the floor and he slept like iron while the dirty knife wore deep into his spine. Blood runs crazy. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We have more of our discussion with Nico Case. I asked Nico uh, about whether or not her new album, Fox Confessor Brings the Flood, is her darkest. I thought this was your darkest album. Murder ballads and twistedness and... And you said, no, it's my most smart-ass album. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. It's my most smart-ass album, yeah, for sure. But I don't know, when you write the songs yourself, you know, you're kind of laughing about stuff, and then people come back and they go, ooh, that's icky. That's scary. (laughs) And then you think, oh, I guess it must be. Well, you had said that a lot of it, a a lot of the lyrics were inspired by Russian and Ukrainian folktales that Mm -hmm. came down from you, uh, uh, to you from your grandparents. Well, more that I read, my my grandparents are Ukrainian, but they try to hide it as best they can. They won't speak it or talk about it. But I realized making this record that the way they tell stories is still very Ukrainian Mm. in that uh, they like to leave a lot of things open-ended and they kind of focus on the more fabulous angles of things. Mm. You know, just, he went crazy. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) There must have been fairies or I don't know what they think. But they like like to leave things pretty open-ended. She was wearing a cape and burning the furniture. That was the last we saw Aunt Dee Dee. (laughs) That's a whole concept album right there. She doesn't mention the part about the fact that there was lead in the drinking water or something. You know, it's just... Something magical happened. Something <laughs> evil. So when you're getting these kind of, uh, using these folk tales, uh, and the album is sort of uh, made to look almost like a book of short stories mm-hmm. or poems or whatever, uh, you sort of get out of the confessional, woe is me, I love you, he, now he doesn't love me anymore kind of mode of uh, songwriting. <laughs> yeah, I got, a, I got a little bored with that, and I wasn't very good at it, so... I thought making up songs about other people would be a lot better. Because, you know, trying to write songs like that, I'd just sit there and go, oh, wow, wow, wow. Oh, don't you sound pathetic. And I couldn't really take myself seriously. So, you know. What about the tune we just heard? Where did that teenage feeling come from? Funny you should ask, and Paul hates it when people ask, because the song actually came from Paul. He was on his soapbox and he was ranting and it was <laughs> He's excellent. He's over there. Look at that. There's actual He was. No, he on. was talking. About, we were talking about being musicians and how it's really hard to live a normal life like being married or having a family. And, and he goes, yeah, but I'm not going to just get married because I think I have to. And he said it exactly like that. He goes, he goes I don't care if I ever fall in love again because I know what it's like. But, but it has to be like that like when you're a teenager. Uh-huh. It, was, it was adorable. And the coolest thing anybody's ever said. Because most people are kind of into getting married, and I'm kind of not, so it makes me feel kind of like mm-hmm. a loser. Uh-huh. <laughs> word. I mean, yeah. I feel you. I know. Not word that I you're know. a loser. <laughs> <laughs> word, I feel you. It's a beautiful song, but it's not, uh, it's not a conventional verse, chorus, here's the bridge kind of song. And, and not a lot of the songs on this record are that way. It gets in, it gets out, it's got its yeah. scuba suit on. <laughs> Man, it's like an oiled seal, it just goes... 
<laughs> and then it's it's gone. That's great. But does anybody? So Nico, does any, you know anybody in your band or you know one of the people you're working with in the studio? Where's where's the where's the chorus here? Where's the bridge? Are we gonna you know are you gonna rework this a little bit to make it more conventional? <laughs> no, know, nobody John, says that. John Rawhouse <laughs> just goes, "Why are there so many chords? Why can't you just use three? <laughs> he lives to yell at me about how many chords are used. <laughs> In addition to having difficulty playing with playing the chords, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're kind you, of in their infancy as far as their skills. So, are you a dictator when it comes to how the song should be played? And I maybe Paul can speak no. to this and Kelly, who have no. been in the studio with you. Generally, the only uh, guidance I give is, "Can you do that more? Will you do that more?" <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't. I don't really have much musical lingo. I don't, I'm not trained or anything, so you know, I have to make up a. Uh, feelings to describe it sounds so hippie and bad oh that green note paul make it greener is that true paul you had to play a green note on this true i played all the spectrum the whole prism of colors what what does a green note sound like can you play one for us Uh, i would think that it sounds something (laughs) like that maybe so what would a purple note Man, uh, <laughs> I get paid for this. Yeah. <laughs> Don't abuse me. I'm not a show poet. It's an advertisement for your, your session. He's not going to give away all the Paul Rigby secrets right. on the right. air. Right. That's right. Very well, smart. If he's going to change the face of guitar playing, he's going to do it on his own time. Yeah. There you go. He doesn't give it away. No. <laughs> is, is there as much fun as we're having in the studio? Is that what it was like when you were recording in Tucson? Most of the time, yes, and there was a couple times where poor Paul and I were kind of holed up in my house <laughs> watching TV till 6 a.m., trying to finish a couple songs that we had heard so many times that we couldn't hear them anymore. So it's kind of like trying to rewire your submarine in the dark. <laughs> you know, you're just under the, the water and you're like, we're going to drown. <laughs> There's 24 men on board who are going to die if we don't do this right. And I'm going to get electrocuted because there's water all over the floor. Why don't you guys give us another tune? Uh, we'll do Margaret versus Pauline. How about that? Great. All right, then. Everything's so easy for Pauline Everything's so easy for Pauline Ancient strings that feel like speeders at mild grace No monument of tacky goldy smoother hair Cinnamon ways They placed an ingot in her breast to burn Fate holds her firm in its cradle And then rolls of her tender paws to save her Everything's so easy for Pauline Girl with the parking lot eye Margaret is the fragments of a name Raideries mistaken for the thrashing in the lake of a make-believe monster's picture is fake. Margaret is the fragments of a name. Her love falls like a fountain, her love schemes like rage. Joy aches from wanting, and she's sick from chlorine, but she'll never be as clean as the cool side of satin poly. One left a sweater sitting on the train The other lost three fingers at the cannery Everything so easy
Very nice. Margaret versus Polly. Now, see, that is not smart-ass. That's frightening. I get scared when you sing about the monsters in the lake. Well, and that the... one's not smart. And what happens? <laughs> what happened to her fingers? Yeah. She, uh, I guess she got them near the machinery at the cannery. <laughs> see, that's, 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 I don't know. That's, that song scares me. It has from the first time I heard it. Well, you know, there are some people in the world who seem to get everything they want, and it's real easy, and then there are some people who kind of have to fight their way through it. Yeah, but see, I think you're wishing the the, the negative stuff on the one for whom it's so easy. No. It's actually, I I wrote it because of this book that I read, and uh, there was these two characters in the book, and when I was young, I read it, and it just really bummed me out, and then I read it again when I was older, and I realized that the author did it on purpose, which was actually really interesting he 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 wrote the book you know from his point of view and uh margaret was his ex-girlfriend and pauline was his current girlfriend and they used to be best friends and now they're not friends anymore and you know he he was constantly complaining about margaret and what what was so icky about her and was constantly praising pauline and how wonderful she was and but everything that he complained about about margaret was kind of the stuff that made her so great like she was really brave and she really uh he he didn't like the fact that she hung out with these roughs on the edge of town. Mm. But the fact is, is she kind of befriended these homeless people and was nice to them. And he just thought she was hanging out with scum. But it's never addressed in the book. So basically, you get to the end of the book and she kills herself because nobody likes her anymore. But she was actually the nice person. So he leaves it for you to figure that out, which is really great. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. But but at the end, I was so mad. I was like, poor, poor Margaret. <laughs> Somebody's got to stick up for Margaret. So you so you wrote this song to stick up for Margaret. I did. What was I the did. book, Nico? It's called In Watermelon Sugar by oh. uh, Richard Brodigan. I Such love a that sad dude. book. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. He's a badass. Yeah. All of his stories are sad, yet really beautiful. Mm. But, you know, the one thing that's interesting to me, that there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of moralizing going on in these songs. No. Even though there's people getting Mm-mm. killed, and there's obviously villains and heroes, and uh, but you don't seem to be, like, casting judgment on any of them. No, You're and just... that, that's what I really appreciate about Eastern European folktales, mm-hmm. um, is that they, they're not judgmental, and they're not... Judeo-Christian ethic kind of, you know, it's either has to be good or bad. It's it's more cautionary tales, right? Kind of like Native American um, folklore as well. Like they're they're both really heavy on the animal imagery and uh, the anybody could screw up kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. You know, it could happen to you. <laughs> exactly. Watch out, you're next. I know it exactly. could happen to you. Well, and you know, it's hard it's hard not to hear this album as sort of like a. A metaphor for what's going on in the world too. I mean, you know, when you can have people beheaded on YouTube, you know, there's a there's a little bit of reflecting going on here. Maybe not consciously, but it does seem to be kind of uh, metaphorical in the way how some of these tales can sort of apply to what's going on in the world. Well, the nothing world was written consciously as a reaction to that, but I'm sure it is. I mean, there's a good reason that I don't watch television, and that's it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right there. Right. So. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you can't live in the world and not be affected by people around you. Even if you're some kind of hermit who never talks to anyone else, there's still you're still a human, and you still mm-hmm. get human signals from other places. And yet, I think Art what, Bell. I'm getting all Art Bell on you. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, watch out, watch out. Alert, Art Alert. <laughs> uh, what I'm getting at is that when you see the songs performed, when you hear them performed on the record, there's a your voice and and Kelly's voice with you. It's very uplifting at the same time. There's almost like a, a, a joy there at the same time. Well, I kind of realized, and maybe it's a bit of, of a device, but sad songs that are performed in a happy manner are about eight times sadder than sad songs performed in a sad manner. But, you know, the songs weren't meant to be overly sad or bring people down. They're kind of just meant to comfort people, because that's how I feel about music, is that music for me when I was a kid was very comforting. Mm-hmm. Even if it was about negative things, I mean, sometimes you just like to hear that other people are feeling the same way as you, or I don't know. And but at the same time, I don't like to spell it out for people either. Mm-hmm. I like the mystery ending, and that you know that's what the fairy tales are, are a lot like too. They're really open ended, so you can kind of draw your own conclusions, or there is no conclusion. I, I think Nico, you, you've struck a chord with rock critics. I mean, certainly, a Fox Confessor debuted high or, or, or finished high one of the best albums of the year according to the Village Voice poll and dozens and dozens of critics lists does that make any impact I mean does that freak you out at all it's like geez they're all saying I'm one of the best records of the year mm, it, it kind of freaks me out a little I mean those are kind of things I can't understand because they're not super tangible to me either I mean I notice a difference if there's more people at the show mm-hmm. 
Because newspapers and, and media, you know, you can hold them in your hand. It's a, it's a magazine, but it's not like a place you can go and hang out in. Right. It's right. kind of a concept in a way. And when you're playing a place like the Park West, which is like, what, 1,100 people, and you sold out three nights in a row in Chicago, it's like, wow, well, at least I know 3,400 people love me. <laughs> it's like when somebody tells you how many records you've sold. I don't have, like, I'm not very good at figuring that out. I'm like, cool. But I don't, <laughs> I just say it. I don't actually know what it means. I'm like, great. Woo. <laughs> but does it weigh on you when you go back into the studio? Because Blacklisted was very, very well received. And then, you know, you have to follow it up. It's time to make a new record. And mm-hmm. you're in the same position again now, you know, a couple of years later. Is somewhere in the back of your head saying, I, I can't suck because all these people are saying that uh, I'm, I'm good. No, it's, it's me going, you can't suck or somebody's going to come and haul you away and lock you up or something. I don't know. No, we've talked you can't that. suck so, or you'll are die. Are you, are you your like, own harshest critic? Yeah, oh, yeah, say. definitely. Okay. If I was taking myself seriously, I suppose there'd be, I don't know, somebody talking to you for me and I would be in a, a bath right now. <laughs> in fact, that sounds really... I can't be bothered to go in. Just that sounds really appealing, it doesn't PA. it? Yeah. So when is this new album uh, that you're in the midst of recording and... Not working on it at the moment, but right now, otherwise. Oh, that's funny that you should ask. <laughs> um, probably September of 2008, if things go according to plan, because September of 2007 is the new pornographer's release. So okay. I got to give that one a wide berth, because we're going to be on tour for a while. Are you going to tour with the pornographer? Oh, yeah. Driving home, I see those flooded fields. Thank you so much, guys, for, for coming in. Uh, Kelly Hogan, Nico Case, Paul Rigby. It's a treat. You're welcome. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, dudes. I've taken it for granted my whole life Since the day I was born Ooh. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So if you have opinions about our interview with Nico Case or anything else we've covered on the show, email us at interact at soundopinions.org or leave us a voicemail on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up, we're going to review the newest from Super Producer and Greg's man crush, Timbaland, (laughs) his much-hyped solo record, and I'll have a Desert Island jukebox pick. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. It's time to review some Timbaland. Timbaland from Timbaland, extolling himself, lead track on his fifth studio record, Timbaland Presents Shock Value, the highest profile release yet from Timbaland, a.k.a. Tim Mosley, 35-year-old Norfolk, Virginia native, best known as 
a behind-the-scenes guy in the, in the music industry as opposed to a, a solo artist in his own right. You may not know who Timbaland is, but you sure as heck have heard his music. Missy Elliott, Ludacris, Aaliyah, Nelly Furtado, Justin Timberlake, countless dozens of artists who have had hits with the Timbaland production touch in the last decade. Uh, basically, since 1996, he has been one of the dominant producers in the business. And for my money, Jim, the best. Not only getting commercial sales, but really pushing the edge of what pop radio will allow. Avant-garde production approach, off-kilter beats, sci-fi sound effects, just really odd soundscapes that he's managed to turn into commercial gold. I We're think really he's had the best of, of both worlds. Uh, what those electronica techno artists, you know, I mean, in some ways there's a lot of Aphex Twin in what he's doing, Absolutely. but he's doing it in the pop spectrum. I mean, we, we brought, brought it all the way back when we did the Revolver show on the 40th anniversary of the Beatles recording Revolver, one of the most innovative production records ever. You can draw a straight line, I think, from what the Beatles and George Martin were doing in the studio in the 60s to what Timbaland is doing in the studios now in the 21st century. I think he's that good. And now he's, he's a solo artist. He's had one of the biggest years of any producer ever with the huge hits last year for Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake. He's been featured on the Timberlake tour this spring in the middle of Timberlake's set. Timbaland takes the stage and does like a 30-minute DJ set, yeah, yeah. which isn't exactly the high point of that show. Shows you what kind of esteem an artist like Timbaland is held when an artist like Justin Timberlake gives over a good chunk of his show to him. And so, now, he's, now he's gearing up uh, Tim, Timbaland to work with Coldplay, Yeah, I mean, along the, with Brian Eno. Everybody wants to work with this guy, it seems. He's had four releases prior to this, none of which were particularly high profile, but now everybody's paying attention to uh, Timbaland. They want to know what he's doing. He's dialed up his Rolodex and brought in all his, <laughs> all his friends. Everybody who ever owed him. Everybody, and then some. Exactly. Everybody who ever owed him, except Jay-Z, I heard. I, Jay-Z, the Jay-Z thing didn't work out, but just about everybody else that he's worked with. Let's play a track from Timbaland Presents Shock Valley with two of those friends, Justin Timberlake and Nelly Furtado on Give It To Me. I'm Give It To Me by Timbaland from Timbaland Presents Shock Value. Greg, as you said, he's done what are essentially solo albums several times in his career before, usually with his buddy, this rapper, who's strictly a B-level talent, Magoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the first time where Timberland is in the spotlight because of his phenomenal successes, and this is going to be like his first real solo album. And what does he do with it? Well, it's weird. That's one of the pleasures on this album, uh, what we just heard, Give It To Me, although lyrically it's, it's got some problems. I'll talk about that in a minute. First off, what does he do musically? First third of the album is devoted pretty much to hip-hop club jams. Middle third of the album is devoted pretty much, and this goes pretty evenly, right down into thirds, mid-tempo R&B, very snoozy. Last third of the album, we're in outer space. He's doing these weird <laughs> yeah. rock pair-ups. He does a track with the Swedish garage band The Hives. He does a track with Chicago pop punk's Fallout Boy that sounds like a reject from their le recent disc. He pairs up with Elton John, and as I said, he's getting ready to work with Coldplay, so he has this band One Republic come on and do a fake Coldplay <laughs> song. 
it's weird. It's not successful. The R&B is not very good. The first third of the album is pretty strong with tracks like uh, Release and Give It To Me and Bounce. But Timbaland shouldn't rap. He is not a good rapper. He's even worse as a singer and even more disappointing than being a mediocre talent. Because let's face it, Kanye West is a great sonic architect too, but not necessarily a wonderful rapper. Timbaland has nothing to say. He devolves into this tawdry sexism of the basest, most cliched sort. And then, on top of that, in between, he's taking a little breaks to tell us how great he is again and again and again. We even just heard some of that. I get half a million for my beats. You get a couple of grand. You know, he's picking a, a fight with fellow producer Scott Storch. Mm-hmm. You're Timbaland, man. You are king of the mountain. You don't have to keep telling us how great you are, and you don't have to lay into that horn dog routine. No. So bass, it, it's, man, What if anything, it makes me admire him less. Yes. It is disappointing. I mean, he is not a rapper. Kanye West, I think, has actually proven himself to be a pretty credible rapper. The personality is there. Timbaland's personality, on the other hand, is kind of depressing on this record. In the past, he'd come across as sort of this cuddly, otherworldly kind of guy. This one, he's petulant, self-aggrandizing. I mean, some very unattractive traits are coming out in this record. He also doesn't seem to know how to deal with these collaborators. Are they full-fledged collaborators on this record, or are they just pieces in this big chess game that I'm playing on my solo record? He's not really clear about that. I think Furtado and Timberlake and Missy Elliott, the big three guest stars on this record, have all done much better work with Timbaland on their own respective releases. And they're sort of in the background on this particular well, release. Well, I was doing some research when I was getting ready to review this album, and I read some reviews where all of those artists you just mentioned talked about working with Timbaland. And one of the things they say about Tim Mosley is he is a true collaborator. He drew things out of me that were there that I wouldn't have emphasized, but he heard. Right. So, so one of his chances as a producer is drawing great things out of the people he's working with. But I think you're right. They all came into his project and figured, I'm here to help you. You made me uh, a millionaire. You made me on the top of the charts. What do you want from me? And he was like, I don't know. I don't think he knows who Timbaland is. I don't think he knows either. You're absolutely right. Ditto for those rock tracks. I was intrigued. What is Timbaland going to sound like with the hives? (laughs) Well, not too interesting. No. I mean, he turns the hives, you know, he turns Pelly of the hives, one of the most dynamic lead singers of the last decade, into a background singer. Just shouting out. Just chanting some stuff on on, on the back of this uh, track. I really want to get to know you. That's what I tell you. Girl, you know I don't play. I think, Greg, we rate things, buy it, burn it, trash it. It pains me to say it. This is a burn it record at best, maybe even a trash it. Yeah. That first third is why I'm giving it the burn it. The, the second two-thirds of the album uh, stink. I, I, I think it's a trash it, Jim. I, I think oh, I know it kills you to say that, too. Uh, it does. I think he's a, he's a major, major artist. This is a huge disappointment. But I can't help but think that every one of these artists has done better work somewhere else with Timbaland, you know, and, and on this record they come together and it's just it's it's just a huge disappointment. That's a trash it from Greg. It's killing him to say it. Uh, <laughs> I'll stick with Burn It, but only the first third of the record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Time to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox, and this week it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Well, Greg, we've had a lot of Nina Simone uh, seeping through the cracks on this show. Amy Winehouse wants to be Nina Simone. The track we started our Timbaland review with, he uh, was sampling Nina Simone. Look. I am all for referencing Rock's past, but I want to know that we are living in the present and we are moving toward the future. And I think that all the stuff that's being said about Winehouse and bringing this hip-hop attitude to the classic early 60s, it's all a load of hooey, okay? Uh, I'll give you a band that did it a couple of years ago and did it better, Portishead. Portishead was an interesting collaboration, an English duo that came out in the midst of a movement that was dubbed trip-hop, kind of taking some cues from American hip-hop, 
but making it English, <laughs> swirling and psychedelic and a little lazier, a little more laid back, very bucolic and uh, mother country. You know what I mean? Jeff Barrow was a really talented young guy at the time. He was from Bristol, England, which, which was uh, trip hop central. He uh, got his start making tea for the members of Massive Attack in their studio. <laughs> they were really the cornerstone band of, of trip hop. He went on to uh, contribute some to Nana Cherry's homebrew album. Remember that one? That I almost one. I wanted to play that one. I'm going to have to save that for another week. Then he decided to make some music of his own, and he got together with a woman named Beth Gibbons, who was only 20 at the time. He auditioned some 20 vocalists, and he loved her. She was doing this bluesy kind of torch song balladry in a cover band in Bristol. So the two of them got together, and what they were doing was building on that kind of cinematic James Bond soundtrack, Shirley Basie, Space Age Bachelor Pad, cocktail music thing, Swing in London in the early 60s, pre-mod revival and soul and R&B, uh, taking that and mixing it with this American hip-hop as filtered through a very English, laid-back, melodic, psychedelic sensibility. I think it was an incredible sound. It turned out to be a fairly limited sound. Portis had never really got any better than their first album, but boy, was that first album a masterpiece. And I'm going to play as my Desert Island Jukebox track the song Sour Times. Thanks for indulging me, Greg. That's Portishead. The track is uh, Sour Times from Dummy. 
1994 that album came out. Seems like just yesterday. Hard to believe. Uh, great choice, Jim, and uh, I do love that record, and uh, the tour after that was mind-blowing. I-, I wish that band would come back together, and uh, I understand they are working on some new material, so we'll see. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because they played live with a band. They didn't just do it with samples, yep. so it was good stuff. What do we got next week on the show? A man who never used samples, Booker T. Jones. He was uh, one of the great Hammond organ players of all time and played a bunch of other instruments as well, too. The uh, the backbone of the Stax record sound of the 60s. We had the privilege of interviewing him at the recent South by Southwest Music Conference, and we will bring you the highlights of that interview next week. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. As always, Sound Opinions is expertly produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. We get some legal help from Dino Armiros. Nico Case's performance was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And uh, our fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatea, who I think was supposed to be on that Timbaland record. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. New messages. Hello, this is Paul from Chicago, and this is my Sound Opinion. I'm calling about the March 31st show, where you discuss the Copyright Royalty Board hearings. I'm a member of the local bluegrass band Tangleweed, and we've really benefited from having our music played on internet radio. Earlier this year, one of the bookers for the Wakarusa Festival, which is a major festival down in Lawrence, Kansas, he heard us on Pandora.com. He liked what he heard, and after doing a little bit more research, he gave us a call and hired us to come down and play their 2007 festival. For a band like ours that played regional and and local festivals last year, the equalizing elements of internet radio has really given us a boost into bigger and better opportunities. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, this is Joe from Oak Park. Just wanted to thank you guys for exploring the Elephant 6 catalog. Uh, I absolutely love Neutral Milk Hotel and... Libby Tremor Control, constantly playing them for my friends who have never heard them, don't know how they miss such great bands. So it was wonderful to hear it on the air, and hopefully we can get more people listening to that great stuff from the mid-90s. Take care. Bye. My name is Tracy Harkins from Chicago, and um, I just wanted to call and thank you guys for uh, talking about the bands that are very important to me um, as a person who has pretty much had their life changed by Neutral Milk Hotel. I truly appreciate uh, profiling Alice at Six. I'm calling from New York City. I had never heard of Rhymefest. Straight out of high school, we didn't know what to do. Wanted to go to college, but no money was nothing new. Wanted to get away, go see the world and do something new. He got approached in the mall by the army recruit. Told him if you want to go to school, we got money too. Sign up at 18, you'll be out when you're 22. He joined the army airborne, got his uniform with the boot camp. Got some discipline on rockers when they shipping them. Whoa, when I heard him and his singing, I was just 
totally blown away. I listen to that. I listen to Robert Johnson and Nina Simone and Nat King Cole. You know, isn't it great after being out late, walking my baby back home, arm in arm over meadow and farm, walking my baby back home. And uh, my suggestion is that maybe he go old, old, old school and put down an album of him singing. We go along harmonizing a song or I'm reciting a poem. Pals go by and they give me the eye walking my baby back home. <laughs> like, that was lyrics. That was like, you didn't have to say, I want to it in your booty girl, in your booty girl, it in your booty girl. <laughs> it was like, yo, you can actually like infer something and know what he was talking about. Cannot wait to listen to the rest of the stream and uh, great stuff. This is Caleb. From Alabama, I'm calling to ask y'all to stop using the word twee. I don't know what that word means. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Real love isn't about grand gestures. It's about the perfect pairing. So get out of here with that puny rose and get down on one knee with a dozen Dunkin' Brownie Batter Donuts with a decadent Coca Mocha signature latte to match. If you really want something special, sip on a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' Refresher with a sweet Cupid's Choice Donut. Take an arrow straight to the taste buds because Dunkin's bringing the love this Valentine's Day. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.